I'm reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You know, everyone here is probably familiar with or at least heard of the superhero characters created by the Marvel group. Characters like Captain America, Iron Man, Spider-Man, etc. have become pop culture icons. Now, there is one character whose name might warrant an asterisk beside it because it's questionable at times whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. I'm referring to the Incredible Hulk, the big, green, powerful behemoth who is the alter ego of a scientist named Bruce Banner. Now, whenever Banner becomes angry, he is transformed into the Hulk, and in that persona, he has difficulty at times telling friend from foe, and is singularly focused on destroying whatever is in his path. In fact, one of his favorite phrases is, Hulk smash. Now, I mentioned the Hulk because I think he is an accurate personification of a powerful human emotion, one that can be irrational, potentially dangerous, and has the capacity to wreak a tremendous amount of destruction. By now you know that I'm speaking of the human emotion of anger. All of us have felt this emotion as well as experienced its consequences and effects, and we all know too well that uncontrolled anger can be one of the most destructive forces that can be unleashed on another human being. We're, we've all been on both sides. We've been angry at other people, and we've had people angry at us. And this is so pervasive in our culture, and we know that Christians are not exempt. We are all capable of having outbursts of destructive rage. Now, sadly, there are many incidents that take place all over and in everyday life that demonstrate the results of such outbursts. Consider, just as an example, one that took place last year here in our state. A married couple's SUV came very close to another car during a merge from one highway lane to another along I-95 near Lumberton. And the driver of the other vehicle fired a gunshot at the couple's SUV and killed the wife. In one moment of uncontrolled rage, the man took a life, a wife from a husband, and a mother from their six children. I can only imagine the destructive and tragic repercussions of that singular act by, by that man who didn't even know the couple. But this road rage incident is just a snapshot. We can see anger rear its ugly head in all areas of life, in culture, in politics, in education, in our relationships. 
and so on. But this is nothing new. It's been happening since the immediate aftermath of the sin of Adam and Eve. And the first murder was committed by Cain against his brother Abel in what was the result of a fit of envious rage. It didn't take more than one generation from our first parents for the world to see an example of the sheer destructiveness of anger. Now, unchecked, the power of anger can ruin marriages and families. It can cause the destruction of property and the loss of life, even start wars and bring down nations. And if we are to keep this emotion under control, we need to consider its nature and its causes, and there's no better source of wisdom and understanding than Scripture, which certainly has plenty to say about anger. Now, because we landed quickly on the passage that Joy just read without the benefit of reading what came before, before it, allow me to give a quick overview of this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. In the beginning of the letter, Paul draws attention to God's wisdom, forethought, and grace in saving people, not for our personal benefit, but to bring praise and glory to himself. Now, the apostle then shifts his focus on the church, where those who have been saved are to participate in God's purposes. And that purpose is stated in chapter 3, verse 10, which says, quote, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, unquote. Now, our passage this morning is contained within a larger context, a larger idea of how people, we are to relate to each other within the body of Christ, given that we are new creations, people who have been spiritually born and adopted into the family of God. Now, earlier, in the first two verses of chapter 4, the apostle urges the saints in Ephesus, and by extension, us, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, there's so much to unpack in our passage this morning in which Paul gives some specific ways that we can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel as we go through life together. We have one imperative after another. Put away falsehood and speak the truth graciously. Stop stealing and do honest work. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Put away bitterness and anger, but be kind, forgiving, and tender to one another, and so on. We could easily camp on any of those imperatives for an entire sermon. But this morning, let me focus on the instruction he gives in verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, before we dive deeper into the, these verses, let me point out that we know from Scripture that there are times when God is angry. And so we can say with absolute certainty that anger is inherently not a sin. And when God is angry, it is a righteous kind of anger that theologians usually refer to as righteous indignation. And just as there are times when God is angry, there are times when it's appropriate even required for us to be angry. Not every episode of anger is necessarily a sinful occasion. I mean, there are things that take place in our communities, in our churches, in our government, in our nation, in our world that ought to make us angry. When innocent human beings are violated, when the truth of God is distorted, when God's name is used to justify unrighteous actions, we should be angry about those things. And if we're not, 
It does reveal an indifference to things that matter to God, which is sin. Now going back to verse 26, note that the first two words of that verse says, be angry. Now if I were to say to you, did you know that the Bible actually tells us to be angry? You probably might say, no, no, that can't be. But there it is, as strange as it sounds. I don't have the ability to understand the original Greek text. So I asked Tom. And he did confirm that the phrase, be angry, in this verse is an imperative form of the verb. So, is the apostle commanding us to be angry? Not really. Even if the verb is an imperative form, I think the apostle here is, at the very least, acknowledging that anger is a part of life in a fallen world and part of our human nature. Now, I'm jumping ahead of myself a bit here, but it's important to consider what follows the phrase, be angry, and that is, and do not sin. Andrew Lincoln, who authored a commentary on Ephesians, paraphrased it this way, quote, Anger is to be avoided at all costs, but if for whatever reason you do get angry, refuse to indulge such anger so that you do not sin. Unquote. Paul's basically saying, when you're in the midst of your anger, deal with it so you don't sin. Notice also that he's not making a distinction between righteous indignation, which, if unchecked, can lead to sin, and sinful anger, which, if unchecked, can lead to further and greater sin. We are to deal with our anger, and how we do that as Christians is something I will cover in a bit. We should also understand that the phrase, be angry, is not a license to express explosive, selfish eruption. And if we are angry with a righteous indignation, it should be imitative of Christ's anger. We are to mirror Jesus' responses to be angry at things that he's clearly angry about and express anger as he expressed anger. Now we can see from the Gospels that Jesus did not treat all sinners the same. He dealt with some sinners in a gentle, sensitive, and compassionate way. Just like the woman caught in adultery, just like the woman at the well, just like the prostitute who wept at his feet, just like the thief on the cross, and so on. These were the broken and the downtrodden. Now, even when he rebuked some of these folks, he displayed a calm, tender spirit towards them, even though he was aware of their sin and their guilt. On the other hand, Jesus saved his unfettered expressions of anger for those in positions of power and authority, like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, so people who should have known better. When it came to dealing with the big boys, he gave no quarter. And for us to imitate Christ in how he reacts to unrighteousness, we need a tremendous amount of wisdom to know when to be tender and when to be strong when we have righteous indignation that mirrors that of God's. And that said, it's important to ask ourselves a question when we're angry. Am I righteous in my anger or am I sinning? Again, we need a lot of wisdom in answering this question because we can mislead ourselves into thinking that we are righteously enraged when we're actually not. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's a very important truth to keep in mind. And Proverbs 20, verse 5 further says this, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, 
We can't even see what's down in the deep recesses of our own hearts, our own souls, to trust it, to righteously judge our own actions. But let me offer something that could be helpful in our introspection. Robert Jones is a professor of biblical counseling in Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, and he wrote a book entitled Uprooting Anger. And in it, he gave three criteria that would correctly classify anger as righteous anger. One, righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Two, righteous anger focuses on God and his kingdom, rights and concerns, and not on me, not my kingdom, not my rights and concerns. Three, righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. Consider that last criterion. Notice that even if we get to satisfy the first two criteria, meaning our anger is against sin with a primary focus on God's purposes and concerns, we can still sin if we don't react in a godly fashion. We can talk about, we'll talk about this more in the message when we consider in greater detail how we are to deal with anger. But going back to Ephesians 4.26, let's consider the words that follow the phrase, be angry. He said, be angry, but or end, do not sin. He recognized, Paul did, that our episodes of anger are not always quite so righteous. There's anger that leads to sin. Now, sometimes we are angry with ju- without just cause. And if there's an emotion that can dangerously lead to the destruction of other people and our own souls, it's anger that's not guarded by and tempered by the word of God. <laughs> he recognized that anger could lead to all kinds of wickedness, and it provides, as he said in the beginning of verse 27, an opportunity to the devil. In the NIV translation, it says, do not give the devil a foothold. What is that opportunity? What is that foothold? Well, prolonging our anger makes us vulnerable to the temptation of giving in to and growing our rage beyond our capacity to control it. And an uncontrollably angry person can overreact, become violent and hateful, and anger can lead to bitterness. And we are given a warning in Hebrews 12, 15 that says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. How can one become defiled by bitterness? Well, bitterness that comes from unresolved anger can eat away at one's soul and erode one's character. You probably know some folks who seem to be angry all the time. That's likely because they've never dealt with anger that they've been harboring for a while. And that's why Paul finishes verse 26 by saying, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, is he saying that you can be angry as much as you want throughout the day, but when the sun sets, you're no longer allowed? And with each new day comes a renewed license to be angry? That's not at all what he's saying. He's giving us a metaphor that's in effect saying that when it comes to anger and angry feelings, we shouldn't nurture or hold on to it and end up harboring grudges. We are to let it dissipate and go away. Now, why is that important? Well, when we're wounded or offended and we don't react in rage or in a retaliatory fashion, we have our anger under control at that instant. And that's important. 
But it's also possible that while keeping our reactions under control, we never deal with our anger. We could repress it and store it instead of letting it dissipate. And you all know what could happen at any time. I know from personal experience how this can end up. I, I managed through a long period of time not to react in anger to something that hurt and bothered me. And all the while, I was congratulating myself. After all, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? But what I was doing was I was storing up my anger. And one day, the straw that broke the camel's back was placed, and I exploded. I was like a dam that just collapsed, sending all that stored up water downstream, destroying everything in its path. And I look back at those times with sorrow and regret, and it drove me to ask for forgiveness from the people I sinned against in my rage. I also asked for the Lord's forgiveness and the grace to repent. And all the sins I committed in my rage were the consequences of my letting the sun go down on my anger, not dealing with it. Now, in order to deal with our anger, we first need to understand it, especially its cause. And what complicates things is that we're all different from each other. We each have different ways of responding to certain things. Some things bother me, that bother me might not bother you, and vice versa. But what do those angry feelings have in common? Uh, uh, what is the root cause of anger? It might not be obvious initially, but if we think about it, we'll find that we get angry because we're experiencing some kind of pain or hurt. Physical pain, for example. Somebody walks up to you and kicks you in the shin. I don't think you're going to thank the person who kicked you. But we all know that there are many other kinds of pain that are not physical. Some are emotional. In fact, most of them are emotional. Someone who hurts your feelings, cheats you out of money, slanders you and damages your reputation, gossips about you, etc. I mean, these hurts can translate into anger. So why is it important to recognize pain or hurt as the root of anger? Well, that's because in order for me to understand my own anger or somebody else's, especially if they're mad at me, it goes a long way for me to look past the anger and see the pain that's causing it. And we might not like what we find because while some anger episode, episodes might have just cause, many are merely because of our sinful desires. James 4, verses 1 to 2 says this, What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We all want or desire something, and we all hope to get what we desire. But then that hope could become an expectation, and when that expectation is not realized, there's disappointment, and disappointment is painful. People disappoint people. None of us are able to fulfill all of the expectations that other people have from us, and the other way around. We expect something, we get something else, and we get angry. Unmet expectations leading to anger happens in the world, it happens within the church. And having expectations is not bad per se, but sometimes we create our own pain by having illegitimate or unreasonable expectations. Now, some years back, and I asked for Carmen's permission to tell this story, um, 
she and I went to a party. And there was dancing. Because there was dancing, I wanted to dance. And because she was with me, I expected her to dance with me. So when she said she didn't feel like dancing, I got hot under the collar. What happened? I had an expectation that became a demand. And when that demand was not met, I was disappointed. And that disappointment turned to anger. Thinking back on it now, I realized I manufactured my own anger by having an expectation that was unreasonable, unreasonable in the sense that I expected Carmen to meet my want regardless of how she felt. Unmet, unmet expectations are big reasons why people are angry at God. Have you noticed the many instances when folks ask God for something and not get it and they lash out in anger and question God's goodness? We've all probably felt that way more times than we would care to admit. Remember Jonah when he was sent by God to preach to the Ninevites? Uh, he, he expected God to wipe out the Ninevites, and when that didn't happen, he got angry and threw a temper tantrum, and God asked him, do you have a right to be angry? And he said, I do. I'm angry enough to die. He created his own pain with his unmet, unreasonable expectations. And before we get too hard on Jonah, Keep in mind that we are all prone to do something similar. Sometimes our anger is not due to people disappointing us. It could be due to situations that are really nobody's fault. You're probably aware of the incident that took place during the first, month, first week of last month when a snowstorm in Virginia stranded motorists along a 50-mile stretch of I-95 for at least 10 hours. I felt for those travelers. And I can only imagine how stressful and dangerous the situation some of those individuals and families were in. And when, uh, when folks caught up in the standstill were interviewed, they were angry. At the governor, at the DOT, at the police. There were also accounts of drivers getting angry at each other. And I would think with those many cars, and as long as they were stranded, tempers would be running short and passengers would start directing their anger against their traveling companions. Now, misdirected rage is often at the tail end of hurtful or disappointing situations beyond our control. Some of you might be familiar with a sitcom from the 70s, All in the Family. The main character is a blue-collar working-class man by the name of Archie Bunker. And there's a running gag in the show whereby Archie comes home from work and he's had a bad day. Things didn't go well at his job. He forgot his lunch. He got home late because he missed a subway ride home, etc. And as soon as he comes through the door, his sweet wife, Edith, and I'm not going to imitate her voice, uh, her voice, asks him how his day went. And his response, he angrily shouts at Edith, hurling complaints and lobbing cringeworthy put-downs, and with the same breath, demanding supper and a beer. Edith didn't do anything to provoke Archie, nor did she cause any of the bad situations he went through that day. Yeah, it was a sitcom, and it was funny in the context of the show. But the sad truth is, in real life, that happens in a lot of households all over. Someone comes home from work, slams the door behind him or her, kicks the dog, cat, or either way, I'm going to upset somebody, <laughs> and directs their anger at family members. 
And this is just one of the examples of myriad of ways we can misdirect our anger. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about the nature of anger, but, and, and I could go on, but I'll pause right here and now ask the obvious question. As Christians, how do we deal with it? It's difficult to give a blanket response because no two situations are exactly alike. There's no silver bullet solution, no one-size-fits-all type of answer. But I think a good place to start would be to go to any recipients of our angry outbursts and ask for their forgiveness. I recognize every situation is unique, but if we are asking for forgiveness, there should be no attempt to justify our actions, like saying, please forgive me for being angry, but it was because you did this, or you did that. If we say those things, we are primarily seeking to justify our actions and not asking for forgiveness. But it's equally important, if not more important, for us to take a step back and ask ourselves, do I have righteous anger or am I sinning in my anger? Now, earlier I gave a reference to Dr. Robert Jones' book, Uprooting Anger, in which he gave criteria for characteristics of righteous anger. Let me just repeat the third one he gave. Righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. In the same section of the book, Dr. Jones elaborates further. Quote, let me quote him directly. Righteous anger remains self-controlled. It keeps its head without cursing, screaming, or flying off the handle. Nor does it spiral downward in self-pity and despair. It does not ignore people or withdraw from people. Instead, righteous anger carries with it the twin qualities of confidence and self-control. Christ-like anger is not all-consuming and myopic, but channeled to sober, earnest ends. End of quote. And that's why I grieve, as I hope you do, when I, whenever I hear of events like, for example, somebody bombs an abortion clinic. Granted, this is an extreme example. But I pointed out to say that it's not enough to be against sin and in step with God's purposes to make our anger righteous. We also have to act and react in a godly manner. If we get in a conversation with somebody who maligns God's character, our response should not be in an ungodly fashion. But we are to keep cool and by the Spirit respond in a way that will not further place God's character in a bad light. He is our Father after all. Now, I will say that this is not an easy thing to do when we or someone we love are the ones sinned against. Somebody vandalizes your vehicle or a school bully physically hurts your child or someone cheats you out of money in financial transaction or someone publicly slanders you, etc. How do we respond? And I'm not talking about going to the authorities and seeking justice through them, although that's certainly something we all should do. But beyond that, how should we biblically respond to the intense hurt we feel in our souls? Now, before I go into the how-to part, let me just repeat something I said earlier. The circumstances surrounding our episodes of anger vary greatly. The steps I will mention are not necessarily in chronological order, nor are they a roadmap guaranteeing reconciliation and healing of relationships in every situation. But these are Essential ingredients in the mix, so to speak, if we're to deal 
with our episodes of anger in a godly fashion. And also, I would acknowledge that knowing what steps to take is one thing, actually doing them is another. When we're angry, we don't think clearly. And in the heat of the moment, we could forget what we should do, much less do them. But that does not negate the importance of being aware of what we should do. So what should we do? First, we lament to God over our circumstances. We lament to God. The book of Psalms is a goldmine of wisdom and guidance on how the soul could give expression to deep emotions, including the pain of injustice, oppression, being slandered, etc. I mean, the Psalms provide patterns of godly responses. And we note that in some situations when the psalmist cries out in, to the Lord for justice, there are requests for the Lord's judgment to fall on the guilty. There are also pleas for vindication. But one thing we'll notice with these psalms of lament is that in the end, the psalmist reminds himself of the character of God and places his trust in the Lord and what he will do in his time and ultimately rests on his goodness and trustworthy character. We go to God. We freely admit our feelings and lay our burdens before him, Excuse me, remembering his goodness and faithfulness in our lives. We have a standing invitation from our Lord when he said, and, and Nathaniel mentioned this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, Second, we lament over our own sin and acknowledge that we are sinners in need of grace. Yes, our anger can fall in the category of righteous indignation, but I believe a great majority of our anger episodes fall in the category of sinful or unrighteous anger because, as James said, we desire and not obtain, which leads to fights and quarrels. We're not angry against sin. It's just plain old selfishness and covetousness that comes from our sin nature. And this is a big step because the sooner we become more aware of our, the sinful nature of our anger, the sooner we will be driven to go to God and admit that we are sinning and petition for the grace to overcome self-centered desires that we have. A third, we are to work on letting our anger dissipate. We are to work on letting our anger dissipate. As Paul said, we are not to let the sun go down on our anger. That is, we are to take steps that will contribute to its dissipation. If and when appropriate, we should talk it over with the folks who have some direct connection with our angry feelings. They could be the cause of our anger or a, a casualty of our angry outburst or both. Yes, it does help to count to 10, but it doesn't always help in dealing with anger long term in the sense of putting it away and letting it pass. I can't emphasize enough Paul's command that we are to let our anger dissipate because if we don't and we store it instead, we carry it to the next day or the next week or the next month, maybe even throughout our entire lives. Resentment, bitterness, harboring grudges, they flow out of a person filled to the brim with anger that's never been dealt with. And the idea behind the commonly given advice that says, if you're angry, let it out. There's certainly wisdom in that practical advice. However, in expressing our anger, we shouldn't sin. We don't just go around saying, Hulk, smash, and unleash our rage on anyone or anything in our way. No, we let it dissipate by crying out to the Lord, confessing any sin 
in our anger and reminding ourselves of his goodness and trustworthiness. We let it dissipate by talking to a brother or sister in a controlled manner. If we're put in a position of listening to someone hurting and angry, it goes far to know the cause of the pain and apply salve, as it were, to their souls. It takes great, great wisdom, I have to say that. Great wisdom, great sensitivity, and compassion to do this. But that's what we're called to do for each other. To encourage one another, exhort one another, to hurt with those who hurt, while speaking the truth in love. So we are to lament over our circumstances to the Lord. We are to lament over our sin. We take steps to let our anger dissipate. And lastly, we do not return evil for evil. Not exacting vengeance for ourselves is in itself a godly response when we are at the receiving end of gross injustice and harm. Human nature will make us want to uh, respond in kind. And I understand that scripture, speaking of justice, does say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But the apostle Paul also reminded us in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean we don't seek justice. But here God calls us to trust that he will set things right in his time and that his justice will be perfect. Infinitely better than any act of vengeance or retaliation that we can do ourselves. I think of Jesus' restraint and self-control when he was being mocked, beaten, and flogged on his way to the cross. If ever anyone was treated unjustly, it was our Lord. If anyone had the just cause to be angry, it was our Lord. If anyone had the right and the power to exact vengeance on his tormentors and executioners, it was our Lord. But instead, as it says in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Once I conclude, uh, let me just exhort everyone here to look in the direction of Christ. If you are here and you have not realized and understood what Jesus did on the cross, I encourage you to speak to someone about him, perhaps someone you came along with this morning. I invite you to turn your eyes upon him for your salvation. And for those who know and follow Christ, turn to him for your sanctification. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to change us from glory to glory, that we might become more and more like our Lord and Savior, not just in the area of anger. I know that's a big area, but in many areas of our lives that need cleansing and forgiveness and healing. So in closing, I will pray for us, but before I do, Let's take a couple minutes to go before the Lord and ask for grace for us to overcome our episodes of anger, that he would enable us to take the steps we need to let it dissipate, and for the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and reveal to us areas of repentance in this manner. So let's go before our Heavenly Father, and then I'll pray for us.